So if you're staying in here, you should have a yellow, dark, dark, darkish yellow handout. Really difficult to label the part, the basis for the supremacy of Christ, Colossians 1, 19 through 23, part three, October 23rd. So you should have that handout. That'll be real helpful to you. And Rick, can you close those doors? In the back, thanks. Welcome to Elmira Baptist Church Sunday School. And I'm glad to see everyone here. Welcome to all those who are watching online. And uh, we welcome you. And uh, pray that you, uh, this will be a blessing to you. Um, we, this is part three of uh, Colossians, the basis for supremacy, verses 19 through 23. Um, and the whole section uh, talks about the supremacy of Christ in verses uh, 19 through 23, talk about the basis or grounds for his supremacy, and the passage has the explanation reasons for the supremacy of Christ. So in 15 through 18, we have the supremacy of Christ, and then 19 through 23, specifically the sufficiency of Christ. Oh, I'm going to move this over so we can hear this a little better. Is that a little better? Okay. I think I might lean this direction a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So, um, we want to start with a word of prayer and ask the Lord to be with us and be with our pastor and uh, be with the other Sunday school classes and pray that we might honor him. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of sharing and looking at and fellowshipping around the rightly dividing the word of truth, looking at your word. I pray your spirit would illumine us today. Give us a fresh look at this passage. Help us to understand the depths of what you are trying to tell us through Paul as he wrote to the Colossians. Lord, may we get a fresh look at the supremacy of Christ and see how important it is and how it applies to our lives. Lord, help us to understand the sufficiency of Christ, that he is capable, capable and able to do all that we could possibly uh, understand. I pray that you would, while our finite minds can't understand that, we pray that you would help us. Lord, I pray for those that are watching online, those that are at home, pray for those that are here and the families represented, pray for those that are ill and sick, Pray for our pastor. We lift him up. Pray for a special measure of grace, for healing. Pray for his well-being and his quick recovery and your blessing upon him. Pray for the service to follow as Guillermo preaches, that you would be with him. Lift him up, Father, and allow him to speak powerfully with the Holy Spirit <clears throat> enabling. Pray that you would begin to bless our lesson this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yeah, Betty's, uh, Betty's got uh, recovering from COVID. Absolutely, yes. So, now, I am going to, since uh, we have been over the first part of this a number of times, I'm just going to say a couple of sentences. That's why I want to give a handout. So, if you see one on the handout. 
look at your handout and you'll see that the supremacy of Christ, because Christ is the image of God, he's the Lord of creation, and he's the head of the body, 15 through 18. Those were uh, substantiations or three statements concerning Christ that demonstrated his preeminence, that he is that he is superior to all. And then verses uh, 19 through 23, where we are now, with the basis or grounds of that and the explanation and the reasons. Supremacy and sufficiency. And Paul describes a basis, item C, under number one on the first page. Paul describes a basis for his supremacy and speaks of Christ's sufficiency, and he emphasizes two things. The fullness of God in Christ and the reconciling work of Christ in verses 20 through 23. Now we've dealt with the fullness of Christ, and that's there for your review and the reconciling work of Christ starts on page 2 and uh, MacArthur defines that as the restoration of a right relationship between a man and God that's not in the handout and then now we're, we're going to go to page 3 and um, the reconciling work of Christ in relationship to the Colossians and this is new and this is verses 21 through 23. I want you to turn into Colossians 1, and we're going to read this passage again. We're going to read 19 through 23, this passage most recently that we're working on. And while I, when I'm reading, I'd like you to look for uh, those four things that uh, verse 21 through 23 talk about uh, how the reconciling work that Christ has enabled through his sacrifice on the cross and the work on the cross, specifically how it applies to the Colossians. And really, it's Colossians and us and all the unsaved. Uh, it, it's those that, before salvation. Number one is their former alienation in verse 21a, the means for their reconciliation. Three, the result of Christ's reconciling work, verse 22b, and the evidence of the new relationship, one, two, three, four. So Colossians 1, 19, follow along as I read. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness dwell. That's the fullness. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile, to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether there be things in the earth or in things in heaven and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked work yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable unreprovable in his sight if you continue grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. So we have former, the four things we're going to be discussing today, the former alienation, the Colossians. Verse 20 summarizes the general overall view of the reconciling work of Christ. Right under, first sentence, top of page 3, right under reconciling work of Christ. And verses 21 through 23 uh, reveal four things that the reconciling work uh, how it applied to the Colossians. Their former alienation, the means for their reconciliation, the 
the results of Christ's reconciling work, and the evidence of the new relationship, verse 23. You see the verses right behind 1, 2, 3, 4. Now, the rest of this is 1, 2, 3, 4, and that's how this outline goes. So their former alienation, verse 21a, the Colossians were once formerly, formerly and we're going to read that, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, 21a. So the Colossians were once or formerly alienated. Literally, that means transferred to another owner, belonging to another owner, or cut off is how it's used. Uh, this word reflects the Colossians' estrangement, and he's making it personal to them, but this remember reply applies, replies, applies to each one of us before salvation. The word reflects their estrangement, separation, and loss, and uh, loss of relationship with God before reconciliation. And the grammar indicates it's a, it's, it was a fixed state or condition, not temporary. So this is something that was not temporary. It was, it was um, fixed until they were reconciled. So also we know that their relationship was with their father, the devil. John 8, 43, the Lord himself said, you know, if you're not up for me, you're against me. And he also said that to the Pharisees when he was talking to them, he said, you are of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. So if you're not, if your father isn't God, he is, it's the devil. Well, that's striking, and I don't, I never like to make that point because it scares me. <laughs> so, uh, any, not only they were alienated, but item B under one, their former alienation about the middle of page three, they were enemies. Now that word is bad enough, but the word actually speaks of hostility and hatred toward God. The word, root word here is hatred in the Greek. And it, it actually can be translated hateful. Their hostility, uh, and number C, their, their hostility and hatred in turn affected their mind. So that they literally, their thought, their disposition, their attitude, their understanding were all affected. Romans 8, 7 tells us. Romans 8 7 tells us to be for to be carnally minded is death but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law neither can be so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God so their mind was affected by the hatred and hostility and literally their thought their disposition attitude and understanding was affected so that would be bad enough but that hostility then was expressed by doing item D doing participating in and loving wicked works and evil deeds because they were separated from God and resented God's holy standard 
and hated him. You wonder why uh, the unsaved people have such an animosity towards God. Generally, they hate him. Um, and they hate us because we're of him. Okay, so what are the means? The, the, the second one was what is the means for their reconciliation? And so we're looking at 21b and 22a. So yet now have he reconciled the last half of 21 and the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. And actually it stops with death. So yet now have he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. Paul states that they were reconciled by Christ in his body, in his flesh, and in his sacrificial death in that physical body. He really emphasizes the flesh and the body here. And I think this statement refutes the heresy that Christ's body was not real. The crazy philosophy of the, of the Gnostics said, well, Christ didn't have a real body. It was an apparition. And they have all these unbelievable philosophies. So Paul refutes that false teaching, goes back and emphasizes the truth. Uh, he, he refuted the false teaching that the spiritual angelic beings without a body could accomplish reconciliation in some way. And it also emphasized that Christ's sacrificial death and his human body was an absolute necessity for reconciliation. And Romans 8.3 tells us for the, what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. So notice that likeness of sinful flesh, the body. The body was not sinful. It was in the likeness of flesh, sinful flesh, but not a body that was sinful. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. So Romans 8 3. Uh, number 3, the result of Christ's reconciling work, 22b. <clears throat> and that's to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. So this is a statement of what God, through Christ, had, has already done for the Colossians. And reconciling them and us that are Christians. He brought them into his presence, no longer stained by sin and burdened with guilt, but holy, unblameable, and unreprovable. And this is a reference to the Colossians' standing or position. Now, standing or position, I'm referring to the fact that God sees us through Christ. And so their standing was forgiven. Their standing was reconciled. Their standing was justified. And that standing or position is effected uh, for the believer by the reconciling work of Christ. Okay, so holy, unblameable and unreprovable. Holy means consecration or being set apart. Uh, like the, the instruments in the temple we're set apart for God's holy use. We are set apart for God's holy use. We're dedicated for God's service. In other words, we're consecrated, set apart for use. And that's what holy means. And then unblameable means, now these are confusing, so that's why I did the, the definitions from the original Greek. Unblameable means unblemished, 
spotless without flaw as in your handout item C in the bottom of page three under the result of Christ's reconciling work holy unblameable unblameable is unblemished spotless and without flaw it comes from the lamb in the Old Testament sacrifice and it's applied to Christ Hebrews 9 14 says how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot that's uh, spotless unblemished without flaw to God to purge your conscience from dead works and serving the living God and then also first uh, Peter 1 9 but without the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot same the same thing our identification is in Christ before God, he sees us in our standing and our position. He sees us in Christ before God without blemish, faultless. So we're consecrated, we're faultless because of our reconciliation, and we're unreprovable. And that means having no accusation or blame without charge. As a result of being in Christ, we're covered in and share the benefits of his death for us. So we're blameless. So we're consecrated, holy, we're faultless, unblameable, and we're unreprovable, that's blameless, without charge, with no accusation or blame. So now turn to page four. We're going to spend most of our time on this page. Uh, we have number four, the evidence of the new relationship. Item number four at the very top of page 23. And I want to read a you the passage here right at verse 23 says if ye continue in the faith grounded and settled, settled and be not moved away from hope of the gospel which you have heard which was preached to every creature which is under heaven whereof I Paul am made a minister that's verse 23 so Paul expresses that an evidence a way you can tell something, the evidence of true reconciliation is continuing in personal faith. Now, J. Vernon McGee really sums this up pretty simply. He says, this is not a conditional clause. You know, if, if I give you something, then you will do something back for me. That, that's conditional. You know, if then and he said this is not a conditional clause that's based on the future uh, the if that Paul uses here is the if of an argument it does not mean something shall be if something else is true we would say since ye continue in the faith grounded and settled Paul's point is that we have been reconciled it's an accomplished fact. So if you are a child of God today, you will continue in the faith grounded and settled. You will continue. You will not be moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard. So he's saying it's as a result of, not conditional. And so the second sentence under top of page four 
Item number four, the evidence of the new relationship. Paul expresses that an evidence of true reconciliation is continuing in personal faith. If you continue can be translated assuming that you continue or seeing that you continue. And Radford, who's a commentator, said, uh, he comments, the Greek indicates not an uncertain prospect, that is something that's just possible, but a necessary condition, an almost certain assumption. If this, then this is going to happen. Paul at once, uh, Paul is at once insistent and confident. They must continue, and he's sure they will. Also, FF paraphrases this, and I really like this. And this aim or goal will be realized in you if you remain in your faith, if you continue in your faith. He points out, this, listen to this statement. If the Bible teaches the final perseverance of the saints, that's eternal security, those who are saved will persevere and make it to the end. It also teaches that the saints who are, who are the saints are also those who do finally persevere in Christ. So that I like that statement. It, it's natural. I mean, we think of, well, we know that the Bible teaches the perseverance of the saints, and the Bible uh, advocates that. But it, it also teaches that the saints are the ones who actually do. The ones that fall away are not the ones that were reconciled. They were those that were, the, those that were false. Okay. Uh, MacArthur says this passage those who have been reconciled will persevere in faith and obedience because in addition to being declared righteous they're actually made new creatures with a new disposition that loves God that hates sin desires obedience and is energized by the indwelling Holy Spirit rather than defect quit from the gospel they heard, true believers will remain solid on Christ, who is the only foundation, and will remain faithful by the enabling grace of God. Uh, let's look at uh, item B. I smiled because this is, you see my name on there. This is my yeah. quote, okay? <laughs> Continuance is the reality or the evidence of perseverance which is our responsibility through or in Christ. We are held responsible for continuing. We know the enabling is 100% God, but we still are held responsible. We are to exert the effort through the power of Christ to remain faithful to our uh, calling, to remain to continue, to remain or continue. And uh, Ironside has said this, the if, this is not your handout, the quotes aren't your handout. The if which, with which the 23rd verse begins has been the occasion for much perplexity to timid souls who hardly dare to accept the truth of the believer's eternal security. So conscious are they of their own weakness and insufficiency but rightly understood, there's nothing here to disturb any sincere believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are a number of ifs in Scripture, in the New Testament, and all 
with precisely the same object in view, the testing of our profession. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, we read, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, wherein ye stand, and by which ye are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. Here the if is inserted in order to exercise the consciences of any who, having professed to believe the gospel, are in danger of forgetting the message, so proving they never really received the truth into their hearts. <clears throat> he would have them carefully examine their foundations. Many times uh, there are, uh, many times there are, um, many times, many, excuse me, many there are who readily profess to adopt Christianity and unite themselves outwardly with the people of God who have never truly turned to the Lord in repentance and rested their souls upon the finished work of Christ. Such endure for a time, but soon forget the claims of the gospel when satanic allurements would draw them away. They never, um, as, as Bruce says, the Bible teaches the final perseverance of the saints. It also teaches that the saints that do persevere are the ones that are in Christ. Um, so, item C, top of page four, continue literally means staying in place. And it actually has an interesting origin in that it, uh, it's translated tarry or staying in the place. In Acts 28, 12, it says, in landing at Syracuse, we tarried or stayed at a place there three days. And verse 14, Acts 28 says, when we were found, brethren, uh, we, desired, we desired to tarry or stay in place with them seven days. When we went to, so we went toward Rome so it actually means to stay in place and uh, Paul uses that here figuratively to mean continuing in a state or attitude and that's an attitude of pursuit of your faith so the word faith then item D can be used to mean a system or body of doctrine but here it means personal faith or reliance upon Christ your personal faith in Christ. So we're to continue. We're to be staying at staying at that place in pursuit uh, of the faith. And faith means our personal faith in Christ. And we're to be grounded and settled. Now, I got to tell you, my favorite things are the pictures that Paul. Paul is masterful. He is just masterful at writing. And he takes words and creates compound words and makes them more powerful. Um, as he used reconcile here, he added uh, a, a, a prefix that made it especially powerful. And grounded and settled are metaphors that really refer to a building. And he says grounded um, and settled in the faith. And that really means being founded securely, stable, like on a rock. Uh, our hope of uh, hope of the gospel is Christ. Christ is the rock. We know it, 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 often in Scripture. 
And then settled means it portrays a steady and firm resolve or steadfastness. So listen to a quote here from A.T. Robertson, who was a, actually a Greek scholar uh, in the 20th century. He said, Paul writes to the Colossians to take no, and wishes the Colossians to take no chances with the plausible, deceptively believable uh, um, heretics who are pleading the gospel uh, that, and really saying that they needed the gospel they'd heard from Epaphras had to be supplemented. It just wasn't sufficient. And Paul, this whole second half is saying it's sufficient. So it needed to be supplemented in theory and doctrine of angels and in practice by the exercise of asceticism, beating down the flesh. So Paul takes the figure of a building. Here's the point. Paul takes the figure of a building impresses home to the Colossians the importance of the firm adherence to the gospel which you heard. If you remain grounded and firm, Paul argues, built on the rock of ages, Jesus Christ, the house will stand, as Jesus showed, for it stood grounded upon the rock. Matthew 7, 25, his allusion to that. Not like the house of the foolish man that built his house on the sand, right? That's in Luke 6.49. Without foundation. Thus the Colossians will have this sure foundation and the firmness of the structure that will stand any strain. So grounded and settled. Founded securely. Stable as on a rock. Settled. Steady and firm resolved. Steadfast. Once again, Paul gives a negative view of stability when he talks about not constantly shifting. Now I'm going to pause, quote here, and look at note on your handout, middle of page four. When applied to the analogy of a building, grounded refers to the sure foundation and settled refers to the firmness of the structure. That's what we, A.T. Robertson just told us. Item G. Be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Okay? That restates this thought in a negative way. Don't do this. And it means not constantly shifting or never abandoning. The hope of the gospel is the hope proclaimed by and provided by the gospel through Christ. Okay, so we're going to go back to this quote. A.T. Robertson, not in your hand, it says, they must not be like a house in a region, like our region, of earthquakes that is constantly shaken on a sandy foundation and constantly changing. Colossians must resist all efforts to shake them loose from the solid foundation of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And all three terms possibly refer to a building, but it's possible that that third term about don't be moved away from the hope of the gospel, the, many people think that could apply to a building, but it also could apply, it could be a change in metaphor. That's uh, the use of a comparison without like or as. The apostle here is thinking not of a building, but of a ship, as in Ephesians 4.14, it says that we henceforth be no more children 
tossed to and fro like on the ocean and then carried about with every wind of doctrine. As the wind blows on the ocean, that's where you go. Every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whether by they lie in wait to deceive. So the hope of the gospel then uh, is conceived as an anchor of the soul. Hebrews 6, 19 says, pausing to read that scripture, pausing the quote, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. We're talking about two things, his promise and his oath. Verse 18, Hebrews 6, that by two immutable things, unchangeable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation. We who have fled for refuge, that term is those that have fled to cities of refuge. That's the, a verb that reflects that. Uh, that's where people would go in times of Israel where they accidentally kill somebody and they would be protected for accidental killings and could not be killed themselves. So, so by two immutable things, God's promise and his oath, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation. We who have fled for refuge to lay apart, lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. So what is that hope? Verse 19. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. I love that term. Both sure and steadfast, which entereth into that within the veil. And the hope of the gospel is the hope of the fulfillment of God's salvation promise. It's an anchor of the soul. Now back to our analogy here in in Hebrew, in uh, Colossians 1 in verse 23 where it says, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. You know, that can very easily be a reference to a ship that's tossed to and fro in the storm by every wind of doctrine that uh, gets blown away by the wind. But we have an anchor of the soul. And, and um, our A.T. Robinson says, a house shaken by an earthquake or a tornado feels as helpless as a ship tossed on the sea. But Paul is anxious that the Colossians shall not shift from the hope of the gospel which you have heard. It is serious as that. Failure to remain firm on the foundation and unshaken by the heresy and the winds of her heresy and doctrine will turn them away from the hope held out by the gospel. They have heard the real gospel by Epaphras. Now they need to remain true to it, continue in the faith. Continue in the faith. You see all the word pictures behind this? And they got it. The Colossians were closer to They know what those metaphors were. And they got it. We miss that. And we just hear the warning. But we don't see the imagery of somebody. You know, we watch the pictures of Hurricane Ian coming and just blowing everything to smithereens. I mean, it took one of those causeways up towards Tampa off of an island. It just blew it to smithereens. I mean, it was totally destroyed. And that's what happens when heresy comes and blows us and we blow to and fro. But when we have our anchor of the soul, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the gospel, we're not blown away. We know what the truth is. Okay. So, uh, 
one more summary of this because I know I gave that to you fast. And this is from uh, Ellicott. Charles Ellicott, the, the, the Greek scholar, said, turn the page here, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. This metaphor is of a ship drifting at the mercy of a storm, tossed about by the waves, and carried around from time to time by every blast. The word tossed is more properly used of the waves themselves, but the following words seem to show that here it's applied to a ship rising and falling with them, just going wherever the wind blows it. And that's, you see people are very shallow in their faith these days, and they, the cults, for a long time, one of their targets were people already in church, because people, the average Christian couldn't tell you the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They couldn't tell you what the first book of the Old Testament was. It's incredible. Um, Charles Erdman said, Christ, or rather, Paul, employs the figure of a building. The foundation is the gospel message which forms the substance of their Christian faith. On that foundation, the Colossians must continue to be firmly grounded as a house which is built upon the rock. They must be steadfast and built up in such solid fashion as corresponds to the to a foundation so secure. They must not be moved away from the hope of the gospel upon all the blessed assurances of holiness and glory which the gospel contains. They must stand secure Steadfast denotes strength of character. Not moved away indicates the stability of position, particularly when withstanding influences that might dislodge them. It is even possible that Paul here changes the figure from that of a building to a ship which might be tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. In this, if, if you admit to this, uh, if, if you agree that this might be a ship, then the hope of the gospel is the anchor which must not be allowed to drag. Now, we are not, I don't know how many of you have anything to do with boats and ships and stuff, but when the anchor drags, it means it just it just drifts. It's not caught of anything, it's just going. But that anchor has to be in the bedrock or into the ground so that it, the ship is stable. So the anchor must not be allowed to drag. Okay. Um, now we are in item G, middle of page four. Do not be and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Um, the hope of the gospel reading from we're reading the whole paragraph. And be not moved away from the hope of the gospel restates this thought negatively, and it means not constantly shifting or never abandoning. The hope of the gospel is the hope proclaimed by and provided by. And I would add through Christ, uh, by the gospel through Christ. It's the expectation of the ultimate, complete salvation that will belong to believers upon the return of the Lord. There may be a contrast here between the certainty of the gospel and promises in Christ with the in comparison with the false promises of the Colossian heresy. Because this talks about how firm it is and how reliable it is and how sure it is as opposed to the shifting shadowy things involved in, in philosophy. 
Um, now, I happened to come across uh, days of praise. How many of you see those days of praise that come through? Did you see the one for the 20th that uh, talked about the scarlet hope? <coughs> Anybody see that? Did you see that? Yes. Okay. I, I, I can't help but want to share this with you. It's right. It's uh, I get it. We get it by email, and I think there's a days of praise in the back for you to flip them. Uh, it's from Joshua 218, the scarlet hope. Behold, when we come into the land, this is about Rahab's uh, physical deliverance from uh, the Israelites conquering Jericho, and she was spared. Uh, her family, her and her family. Behold, when we come into the land, thou shalt find this line of scarlet thread in the window which thou didst let us down by. This is the spies talking to her. And thou shalt bring thy father, thy mother, and thy brethren, and all thy father's household home unto thee. And quoting from Days of Praise, these words were spoken by Rahab, to Rahab by Joshua's spies, after she had protected them from discovery by the officials in Jericho. She hid them. Uh, she testified, she had testified to the spies, the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth below, Joshua 2.11. Therefore, by faith, Hebrews 11, which is, appears in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith there, by faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she received the spies with peace. Now, Rahab's spiritual salvation came because of her faith in the true God. She soon entered into the covenant family of Israel and eventually became a member of the family line do you know she was actually in the line of Christ? Yes. Uh, Matthew 1.5. Her physical deliverance, <laughs> that is, her being saved from destruction and the invasion of Jericho, on the other hand, uh, that depended on a, quote, line of scarlet thread or cord that suspended from her window identified her home as under the blood, so to speak, when Jericho fell and all its other inhabitants perished. She told, they told her to put a red uh, cord, a scarlet thread down uh, her window so that they could see who she was. Now the thin blood red line constituted a very slender hope for Rahab in the midst of such a scene of judgment and total destruction. But it, it, it sufficed. It's fascinating to note. Now, this is one reason I wanted to share this with you is because it gives. She had no hope. She knew they were coming and they were going to kill everybody. But they spared her, but she put that scarlet line down symbolically to identify that she was friendly. Okay. So, it's, no, this is, I did not know this. And this was striking to me. And it's one of the things <coughs> that I love when you're able to look behind the scenes. It's fascinating to note that the Hebrew word for line or cord occurs here for the first time in the Bible. And then everywhere else after, it's translated by the key word hope. And I'm going, well, how could that be? Reading on, it says, perhaps the, the, the word line soon began to mean hope. 
because of this very experience and what it symbolized for Rahab. Uh, and so it's perhaps the lot uh, the word line soon became the generic word for hope because of this very experience when a scarlet hope extended all the way from a repentant sinner to the very God of heaven and the same thought I looked up I looked this up because I didn't believe it but the same word in this text in Joshua 2 18 is the same word as in Psalm 71 5 that says um, for thou art my hope O Lord God and I love the fact you know when some people uh, I know in certain regions of the country when they want to have a soft drink they don't say soft drink they say coke because that was the first well scarlet uh, the word uh, for uh, hope was uh, a line or cord and that became the name ever after and now hope I want to share with you hope we don't have a good hope is probably uh, a Christian hope is probably one of the most misunderstood least understood doctrines of scripture and uh, I want to share with you what MacArthur said about hope he said I find it frightening to even contemplate a, a life without hope fortunately those of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ have reason to hope now this is not at all as the world defines hope and this is true most people use hope for a synonym wish or desire they say they hope someone uh, they long to see will visit they hope to get a job thereafter they hope to get grades that they're pursuing they hope their dreams come to pass uh, they hope somebody gets well we say that all the time that's not what it is in scripture but in the Bible it's not a wish it's a reality it's a certainty it's something that's a fact it's a fact not yet realized um, biblical hope is a fact that God has promised and will fulfill as such it represents a pillar of Christian character hope is that spiritual attitude that causes us to look confidently into the future and motivates us to pursue Christ's likeness with maximum effort the author of Hebrews says this hope we have is an anchor of the soul a hope both sure and steadfast one that enters within the veil because you know the Lord Jesus Christ went into the veil the Holy of Holies symbolically he which symbolically represented his death on the cross and his provision once for all for sins uh, our hope is an anchor which means it's not movable or shakable our hope is in Jesus Christ himself who has entered into God's presence in the heavenly holy of holies on our behalf. He serves as our great high priest forever interceding before God for us. It is in this first, in, a, in first Peter, uh, Peter offers further proof of the security of our hope. Blessed be the God of our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed. Uh, various trials and one of the times that hope means the most 
that assured certainty of what God has promised us will come to pass is when we're in trouble or we're having difficulties. We have a hope in Christ. I wish there were another word because it's confusing because we use it as a conditional thing. Maybe this will happen, maybe it won't. But we hope this happens. And that's not true. It's a certainty. Okay, three statements that um, reflect the importance of remaining true to the gospel. And um, this is the same thing that Paul said up in verses 5, 6, and 7. Number one, it's the message you've heard. In other words, he's saying this is an authentic message preached to them by Epaphras, which was his representative. And number two, it's been preached in all creation under heaven. That means it's universality and expansiveness and scope are a mark or sign of its authenticity. And uh, number three, I, Paul, am made a minister. Paul affirms that he himself was made or became a minister, a working servant of of this gospel and dedicated his life to furthering the gospel. The gospel they've heard from Epaphras and which has been proclaimed in the world is the gospel that Paul preaches. Paul was a witness to the power of the gospel he preached and he's a powerful personal example of the true gospel. He himself was saved. Can you imagine a worse sinner than Paul? He murdered and killed other Christians. He was out to kill Christians. The Lord got a hold of him and said, and, and the bright light. Well, he said, I, Paul, that may reflect also his awe and wonder of being commissioned to be a minister and made a minister. That's a transitional phrase linking. This is Paul's transitions are so smooth. smooth. He's now going to go into a section that really reflects Paul's mission and his ministry. Colossians 1 24 through chapter 2, verse 7. So I'm going to leave you with these words um, that from Ironside that has said we meditate we meditate on a lot of things uh, but when we meditate we should meditate as we ponder the wondrous truths brought before us in these verses the spiritual mind will feel more and more that we have here truths of a character beyond the ability of the human mind to grasp. Here is truth for pious, medi pious meditation. <coughs> this is what we should be meditating on. To stir the soul to worship and thanksgiving, not at all for the exercise of the intellect and theological expectations or speculations. As we read, we should bow our hearts in humble, lowly adoration and thus gaze upon the face of him, Christ, who has come forth from the glory that he had with the Father in all past eternity in order to bring us come down to earth on the cross, to bring us into the knowledge of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words here. I pray that you would cause us to meditate on these, Father, and that we would it would give us cause to worship and be thankful. Pray, Father, for our service coming up, and that you be with Brother Guillermo, as he speaks to us, and that you would uh, be with our uh, service, uh, our afternoon pray, testimony and praise service. You would bless it as well. Thank you for each family at home that's watching, those here, that you bless them. Pray again for our pastor for healing, and encouragement, and comfort. In Jesus' name we pray.